He is risen. It's great to see you all, Branch. How you guys doing? It's good. Happy Easter. I'm glad you guys are here. If you're our guest, I want to welcome you. My name is Greg Harris, Senior Pastor at Olive Branch. Glad that you would choose to come join us and join your family. You're probably here with some family members. And maybe this is your first time in church in a long, long time, and there might be some nerves about that. You know, maybe you thought we were going to make you stand up or raise hands or something like that, and you're like afraid of that. We believe in making you face your fears. So right now, would you, I'm just kidding. We're not going to do that. <laughs> No, no. Uh, actually, we are, um, we're just glad you're here. And honestly, there are. There's a lot of nerves that can come in. Maybe it's been a long time since you've been to church. Maybe a while since you've been here or even to a church in general. And so maybe you're thinking, hey, they're going to shake me down. They're going to make me ask for my, they're going to try to like quiz me about my faith. Where am I at? And no, no, we, we just want you to be able to sit back, enjoy, and kind of just take a breather and think through what we're thinking about and sing with us as we go through this. I'm glad that you are here. You know, all branch, what we like to do on Easter is actually start into a series on purpose because I, I think that the, um, this, this day, this Resurrection Sunday has so many applications that we want to look at and examine. And in particular, what we're going to do is we're going to dive after something important, namely our fears. And so in this series, Overcome, that we're starting right now, we're going to be going after some of our fears, like the first time at church or something like that. Some of us have a lot of fears. I've been talking to some friends in the um, last few months. Um, one in particular conversation came to mind where he was telling me, man, I got to stop listening to the news. Anybody else with you right there right now? Because it's just freaky. Like the things in the news right now will cause you to have panic attacks. There are ISIS and all the crazy things they're doing in Iran and then you got Russia and you got China and you got economic situations happening because it was like, hey, economy's good. Just kidding. You know, that was the news yesterday. And it's just kind of like all over the place. You've got Ebola and swine flu and... I thought, you know, they, when I heard there were measles at Disneyland, I thought they like launched a new character or something. You're like, whoa, measles, what is going on around here? And there's some pastors going, hey, it's the end of the world kind of stuff. I don't know if it's the end of the world or where it's at yet. I'm not... Not ready to predict all that kind of stuff. All I want to do is, though, is say that there is a very real sense that many of us can begin to be attacked by panic or fear in the middle of all of this information, in the middle of all the danger and all the, the craziness inside our nation and beyond our nation. And you'll start thinking about it, and you're like, man, this, this is awful. And you're, you're going, yeah, Greg, I came here on Sunday to, to kind of stop thinking about that stuff. Don't bring that in now. But I think it's important as we face fear. As we approach and look at these things, what I really think is underlying all this fear and all the fear issues is really a fear of death. I think that's what really drove Angelina Jolie, to be quite honest, in her cancer, in her approach to her cancer thing is a fear of death. There is a hyper reaction that we as a people can get into when we are faced with the thought of our own mortality and demise. And that fear of death is something that I want to address first as we jump in. And some of us are going, I don't really have a fear of death. You know, I'm okay with this thing. It's like, well, hold on a second. I think all of us underlying everything has a bit of a fear of death. I want you to imagine it this way. Do we have any skydivers in the room? Anybody who likes skydiving or has done skydiving? Throw your hand up real quick. You know, a couple of you guys, good. The rest of us are sane, thank you. I'm, I'm glad. No, it's like, no I, that's like one of my, I have a slight fear of heights, and so thinking about jumping out of a plane is kind of like not, not really in my cup of tea. And so when, I was, when I'm thinking about it, though, I want us to imagine instead, you're sitting there, you've, you've jumped a few times, you're confident about things, and so you're, in the, you're now in this plane, and the plane door opens, and you jump out, and you're out there in that first moments where you're starting to accelerate rapidly, and the wind is whistling through your ears, you're trying to get 
take control of your body as that, as that wind is pushing on you in different directions. And finally, you get figured out you're, you've got that appropriate stance, you're, or not stance, but you know, kind of position in the air. And you're, you're hearing the whistle. You're watching the curvature of the earth and it's slowly starting to flatten out. The mountains that are little things are starting to rise up and become bigger things. The lines on the ground are starting to look like roads and houses and stuff. And you're flying at terminal velocity straight towards the ground. And you're getting the rush, and the adrenaline's kicking in, and finally you're like, okay, your meter tells you, this is time, time to pull the ripcord. You grab it, pull it, and nothing happens. You're like, no problem. That's why they gave you the emergency ripcord. You grab that, you pull it, and nothing happens. In your panic, as you're still floating, and the curvature of the earth is getting flatter, and now there are cars on that street, and there are, you're starting to imagine the people down there, and you're thinking, there soon, I'm going to be hitting this ground. You reach into that pack, and you start ripping at it, and you discover there's no chute in that pack. And you are flying toward that ground, and it's accelerating at you faster and faster, going, now, do you have a fear of death? No, I have a fear of the impact of the ground. Yes, you have a fear of death. There's a reality that you're going to die. You think, this is a great imagination game. No, think about it this way. That every step of the way, every, every accelerated breath, everything moving by, that's just another moment. That's another birthday. That's just another day in your life. That's another going to work and coming home. Another drive on the freeway. Every moment, every step is just a little bit more wind passing you by. A little bit more of the curvature of the earth flattening out. A little bit more detail as you get closer and that pain starts showing up in your knee. And then your back and then your hair starts changing colors or going away. You know, all of this stuff starts moving towards you. And you realize death is an inevitability and you are no longer 18. Because we're invincible when we're 18. Everyone, everyone, we are all affected by the fear of death. In fact, it's interesting, the Bible even opens it up in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 15, speaking about the victory of Christ. He starts talking about the, his overcoming of the, of the evil one. And he says, and he will deliver all those through who, through the fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. I, this is an interesting verse to me, and as I was studying this, I came to, it just kind of opened my mind of the idea that everyone, first of all, it seems to indicate, has a fear of death, and that fear of death makes us act in certain ways. It moves us and motivates us. It actually literally can enslave our lives. And where, where I see this is especially in the fact that every culture deals with death. I, I don't care if you go to Africa and you go into the bush or in uh, Ethiopia or, or the jungles or wherever you head to, whether it's a city in the middle of uh, Europe or where, you will find people's response to death. They come up with a, a kind of way of responding. The Aztecs had their concepts of Tlalacan, which is their paradise, garden paradise, and Mictlan, which was their frozen wastelands, and they had the, the Sinote pools, in which that's where the underworld was, and the bats would chew you up for life and eternity. You know, every, you had uh, the pantheistic ideas of India, in which you'd just come back as a butterfly or a cow or something else. You have the concepts in our world in India, in the Middle East where it's heaven and hell. You have that in Europe. You have the concept of Valhalla and the Elysian fields and the more warlike barbarian tribes. Every culture has created an answer to what happens after death. Every culture in an attempt to deal with the fear of death has come up with something. In America, our answer is everybody but Hitler and Stalin gets to go to heaven. That's it. 
You know, maybe, maybe some of those people associated with him, but generally, if you're a person in the United States, we're pretty much all going to heaven. And that's kind of how it works for us, except my question, and I'm going to be the jerk pastor right now, is kind of just say, like, how do we know that? Is that just a layover of a Christian heritage in our culture? Where'd you get an idea of heaven from? I mean, really, Christianity speaks about heaven. It's a word from heaven. It's a it's a concept of, of peace in life. Do we just believe that? Because, hey, you know, everybody else said so. I was at a funeral and the guy said he's in a better place. So we all go to a better place. And I think that there's a lot of pushback in our culture right now. I think athe- the new atheist movement and things like that is just simply looking at us going, you guys have a bunch of wish fulfillment problems. You're just trying to make yourself feel better. And really, honestly, you're making it up. How do you know what's after death? How do you have any concept? I mean, look at what I just laid out. How many different concepts there are after death? It sure sounds like we're just making stuff up. And, it, and it's because of this discomfort of a fear of death. I faced that fear of death a few years ago when my mom died of cancer. And I can remember not wanting to go in. I, I was being a typical American. I didn't want to face death. My mom was on a breathing tube. Things had gotten really bad. And um, so I was outside with my wife and I was like, I need to go back. I got a lot of work to do. And she's like, Greg, you need to get back in there and spend time with your mom. This will be the last time you could see her. And what she was telling me is go sit down with somebody who couldn't speak to me, who was on a breathing machine and be there in the face of death. And I Praise God for my wife. I went back and it's some, I'm glad I sat, spent that time there. But it is frightening when you have to face death. It's no wonder as Americans, what do we do? We take, our, we take our loved ones and we put them off into a processing center called a morgue where they're put in a frozen place and suddenly they appear very beautiful and, and like they are alive sitting in a, in a casket and we get to view them or maybe not. And we view them and then we close it and off they go again. That's weird compared to how other cultures deal with death. In the 1800s, if somebody had died in your home, they would be stuck. You, you basically didn't just send them off somewhere. You put them in the bed, and everybody came over and saw them lying there dead in the bed. And you paid your, paid your last respects. You didn't goof around in a parking lot before you went into some unknown memorial place. No, the pictures and the images of that person were everywhere. Their life was represented at the wake. And you taught children to deal with the reality of death and the presence of death in the home. Because it was a normal reality. And death has become something that we've anesthetized, we've pushed away, and even worse, we've turned into an entertainment because the most death we're exposed to is really just in movies and entertainment. And it all stems from our fear of death. Which is why we run after going for youth. We want to have products that make us young. We want to be smart like young people. We want to look like young people. We want to talk like young people. We want to be young. So everything we do and all our plastic surgery and everything is for being young because we don't want to think about what's over there. We don't want to imagine that the wind is howling through our ears and the land is coming closer and the parachute is empty and we're going to hit it. There's a fear of death. And so some of us play safety games. We, we build new laws and rules and we, we argue for legislation because if we just had more laws and more rules, if I just ate more organically, if I just had a little bit more vitamins, if I just made sure I would drink a little bit more, put a little bit more oils together and I made sure that I, were, I, you know, I had all these things together and didn't eat my French fries and didn't smoke my tobacco and all that stuff, I'll be good. 
And then the marathon runner who does that dies of a heart attack at 32, and you go, what in the world just happened? And we think that safety and insurance and is going to somehow keep us from dying. Instead, it just gives us the illusion that things are all okay for now. Others of you, have, you, know, you just, you're like, you know, you know, you only live once. You're out there partying like crazy, getting everything you can because you only get one life and that's all you get. And so pour, fill it up, pour it in, pack it in, get as much pleasure as you can. Because when you die, it's all over. All fear of death and lifelong slavery. We respond because we don't know what to do with death. You're like, thanks for Easter. This is so happy. Well, <laughs> you know, some of you guys are going, well, I don't really fear death. I mean, honestly, Greg, I mean, you're like Woody Allen. I don't fear death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. <laughs> but honestly, some of us don't fear death because we think we're going to heaven. And we've already talked about that may just be wish fulfillment. Others of us are, you, you may be here and you don't believe in God. You, you are an atheist. You'd claim for yourself, hey, you're here with your family and, and, and you support your, your spouse or your children. But the bottom line for you is like, hey, look, you die, that's it. Life is meaningless. It has no purpose. It has no point. It's just going to poof. And you, and you view yourself as noble and capable of handling that concept. The problem is science is getting away from you. There's been enough studies of near-death experiences that have been revealing that there is indeed consciousness after the death that is causing a wave throughout neuroscience to ask what in the world is going on. The fact that children who have died can wake up, not, not like in movies, I'm not talking about that, these are actual studies, and they've interviewed them, they say, what's going on? They talk about what happened in the room, people go, oh, that's no big deal, and then they say, yeah, there's a red shoe on the roof. Actually, one of the documented statements, they went up on the roof and found that red shoe. People who have talked about the conversations happening around their home table and the discussions that were being made and where everybody was seated and it was exactly correct, even though they're dead on a table miles and miles away. The evidences that are lining up is proof that it's just not a waff, you're done, no existence. There seems to be enough evidence exists that are showing us that we don't understand really what goes on after death. And that should scare us as humans. Scare the apostles. Scare the disciples. In fact, let's take a look at this as we take a step toward a solution to the fear of death as we look at Mark chapter 4, verse 35 through 41. If you don't have a Bible, we're not expecting you to bring one, but if you want to join with us, go ahead and grab one out of the seats under, under the chairs there and you pull it out. You'll be on page 839 in those Bibles. You'll be right there with us. Mark chapter 4 is, um, begins where Jesus just preached a long message um, to a large crowd. And he desires then to get away from the crowd to rest. And so in verse 35 it says, On the day, excuse me, on that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. So Jesus is speaking to his disciples. Let's go, where's this other side? They're at the Sea of Galilee, a larger lake that is up in northern, uh, northern Israel and was fished regularly. In fact, four of his peop- disciples are actually fishermen who fished this lake continually. Brother, two brothers that had um, worked this lake. Now there's some tax collectors and other guys who are also part of the apostles. And so 
They climb into a rather large fishing vessel, which could hold 13 of them. And uh, they, they gather onto this and they start sailing across this lake, which is known to have some wind that kicks up and, and can cause some problems. And so it's not unheard of, but as they get going, they leave the crowd, verse 36 says, and they took Jesus with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with them. So a whole group of boats are taken off across this lake. <clears throat> a great windstorm arose. And the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But Jesus is in the stern, asleep on the cushion. Let me kind of illustrate this. This is a great windstorm. This is not a small, normal windstorm. This is huge. Waves are starting to lap. The boats are rocking. The, the, uh, the few guys in there who aren't fishermen are screaming, We're going to die! And so they're rocking back and forth. The fishermen are going, This isn't good. Start bailing. This is bad. The other boats are, they're all bouncing around as this wind is blowing. Spray is hitting. And Jesus is... And it's crazy. And here's Jesus on the stern, just wiped out, exhausted from a whole day of ministering to people. And in this contrast, they run up to him in verse 38. They woke him and said, teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? Translation, wake up, we're dying. That's what's going on. They're freaking out. These are fishermen who know this lake have been through storms. They're in the middle and they're going, we're going to die. They have the fear of death in them. And the craziest thing, verse 39, Jesus woke and rebuked the wind and the sea. And he said, peace, be still. So he's like, wakes up, chaos, screaming tax collectors, fishermen running around, boats sail up and down, waves splashing. And he's like, what? Hey, let's calm this down. Everything just goes, the wind stops, the sea calms, the boats settle. Peace, be still. The wind ceased and there was a great calm, verse 40. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? You want to talk about confusion. Here you are, disciple, you're going to die. And Jesus just wakes up and he goes, calm down. Everything calms down. And he looks at you, why are you scared? You know, it's like... This is calm music and then playing in the back. Why are you scared? Why were you so afraid of dying? What, don't you have any faith? Now, I need to be careful here because the word faith in America has a tendency to mean a special powerful force that if you wield it, you can get things from God. That is not what faith means in the Bible. Faith simply means to trust. You trust in the chair by sitting in it. We trust in people. And what he's basically saying is, hey, you're scared to death, but do you not have any trust in who? In me. And suddenly what Jesus does in this one act is he pits our fear of death against trust in him. He literally says, you want a solution to the fear of death? Trust me. Trust me. And and on Easter morning, as we're here to celebrate the resurrection, I can tell you the reason we can trust him, the reason he points this direction is because he is the one who beat death. No other Religious figure has ever claimed to have beat death, but Jesus has risen from the dead and he has beat the primal fear of death by coming back from it. And this is found in the fact of the resurrection, the very central piece of Christianity. And I need you to hear, this isn't a mythos. This isn't some made-up story. We believe this happened in history. 
And the, his, and the resurrection has evidences that build with it. And I'm going to quickly go through these. If you want a more detailed line-by-line argument, go back to last year's Easter message and that whole series, and you can get a better argument and line of uh, uh, the whole thing. But I'm going to give you the hints, the highlights of this argument. And basically, it starts here. that Paul is writing in 1 Corinthians. Now, you're like, oh, that's the Bible. Well, hold on a second. Think of it as an ancient letter, because it is. We have these as real documents, not bound in a Bible, as separate documents on papyri, as a letter mailed or not mailed, but delivered by a delivery man to a church. And so Paul, who lived in 54, wrote this in 54 to 56 AD, wrote this letter out. And he says, for I delivered to you as first importance what I also received. So he's not giving them something he hasn't been given. And then he enters into a creed. That Christ died for our sins with the accordance of the scripture. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. So this creed is something that scholars, historical scholars say, this is the oldest fragment that we have of the New Testament. If you want to take this back, Jesus died in 33 AD. This was likely written between the time of Paul's conversion, which is in 36. So somewhere between 33 and 36 AD, this phrase, this phraseology was written. Only a couple years after the crucifixion of Jesus, which... You have to have uh, at least 100 plus years before you can build a mythology into a people group. Whatever this is, they're claiming that these are eyewitness situations. That first of all, Christ died for our sins. Crucifixion was an unknown. It's commonality. They knew what dead people looked like. They knew how dead people responded. And that he was raised on the third day. Somehow this tomb is empty. They knew where the tomb was. They didn't find the wrong one. They still, we still know where it is today. Archaeologically, we're pretty sure about the location. It has a long enough history in the background, but I don't have to get into that. But you have an empty tomb, and then suddenly, you have people that declare, not that the tomb is empty. They're saying, no, he was raised. He is alive. And he appeared to Cephas. We go, aha! That's Peter. Ah, he's the beginner. He's the one who made up the story. And see, we've all believed Peter's lie ever since. Well, Peter is the first to see it, but then he's then to the 12. That's the disciples. They go, ah, it's a conspiracy. That's what this is. The 12-person conspiracy that has gone on through centuries. How do we not know this isn't made up? And I go, that would be great. If it was just Peter, I would agree with you. If it was just the 12, I would agree with you. But suddenly we see that it goes on. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. All right, so if we were in a room and I had one witness, we could discount him. Then I had 12 more, and we go like, oh, okay, yeah, but maybe they're all conspir- there's a conspiracy here. But people who deal with the conspiracies, 12 is a lot. Richard Nixon didn't have that many, and his conspiracy fell apart in months. And here suddenly you have 500 people at one time. Oh, this was all to get rich, I've been told. All, all to get the women. All First of all, they taught against getting women. They were all poor when they died, and they were murdered for their faith. Not because they were trying to kill people, but because they were proclaiming something. And suddenly we have 500 more people on stand. That begins to add up to a lot of human beings. That's more than in this room right now. Would all have stood up and said, yeah, I saw him alive. Yeah, I saw him alive. And he says, most of whom are still alive. In other words, go talk to him, though some have fallen asleep. And then he goes on. Then he appeared to James. Who's James? Jesus' brother. Well, and the leader of the church after about 40 to 50 AD. And they go, well, yeah, obviously. Except that James is noted in the New Testament to not have believed in Jesus at all. 
It was his brother. I mean, you can imagine. Jesus, James is sitting there going, I don't know what you're talking about, man. He never walked on water when we were in the bathtub together. You know, that kind of reality. He knew Jesus really well. And he's going, I don't think he's no Messiah. Until something happened. And, it's a, and James was in charge of the church, endorsing this kind of stuff, is saying, he appeared to me. I saw him alive. The only reason why he would convert from disbelief to belief, from his strong Jewish roots to something else, was because something occurred. Where 500 other people said the same thing, the 12 and the 1. And Jan- but then you've got this last one, and to one untimely born, he appeared to me. Paul's writing. Paul, if you know his history, was a man who was deeply rooted in his Jewish faith. A Hebrew of Hebrews, he calls himself. And as he jumped at the opportunity to stop a movement, he persecuted the church personally by dragging people before councils and having them stoned. And that's not a drug stone that's picking up rocks and throwing them at people, kind of stoned. Executed for their faith. This was Paul's job. And on his way out to finish this job in the city of Damascus, Jesus appears to him, knocks him down basically on his horse as he sees Jesus in his call and told, stop persecuting my people. What do you think you're doing? And suddenly Paul realizes, I'm wrong. And as he says here, he writes in his, own, in his own eyewitness testimony, I saw him, he appeared to me. Suddenly you have hardened opposition become the greatest person who's promoted the faith probably in the history of the church. What happened? All of these lines of evidence, along with a few others, line to one historical event that Jesus did indeed rise up out of that tomb completely healthy well and in the narrative of the Jewish mind and all that it fit together he had begun what was called the resurrection Jesus overcame death God had begun to work and transform things and I find that convincing for a reason guys every human being on the planet fears death at a primal level every culture Every group, New Yorkers, Southern Californians, people in the bush in Indonesia, people in Africa, all fear death. How would a God who says he's the God of all peoples communicate to all peoples when they speak different languages, have different cultures, have different things? What kind of sign could he possibly get the attention of all of humanity except that he overcomes the one thing that we all have universally together and it's not taxes, it's death. God spoke the one language that every human could hear. And God said, I exist, I'm here. And maybe we resist this because we don't want him to exist. Most of us believe God exists. Most of us have looked at this world, looked around at these things, said the complexity of the universe, the complexity of life, the complexity of this, of this world, there's got to be a God. Most of us are in that camp. But some of us are in this camp, but he couldn't bring somebody back from the dead. He doesn't do miracles. You know what that sounds like to me? That sounds like to me that we're all agreeing that, hey, you know, Tolstoy can write War and Peace. And for those of you who don't know, Tolstoy is, J.K. Rowling could write, you know, the the entire Harry Potter series. This is both a lot of information, okay? I believe that they could write these works, but they couldn't move a comma in the manuscript. No, 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 no way. I just think that sounds silly. That a God who could create everything 
can't bring somebody back from the dead to make a statement? To get our attention? That wind is howling. That ground is coming. Maybe what he's trying to do is let us know that we don't have to fear. In fact, trusting in the resurrection actually becomes something that we like to say saves us. We get this from this verse here in Romans chapter 10. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Saved? What do you mean by saved? You're flying down. You've got no parachute in your backpack. That time is coming. There's nothing that's going to keep death from hitting you. You are going to hit that ground. And suddenly out of nowhere, Jesus, you're like, Jesus? Yeah, that's him. He's right next to you. And he's got, a bat, he's got a full working parachute. And what he does is he unlocks it and he goes, give me yours. Take mine. No, 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 you're going to die. No, I will be fine. Give me your pack. And he offers you an exchange. And he says, here, you do not have to fear death. You, I am giving you a way out. Take the shoot. What he offers us in the scriptures is clear. He offers us a way of salvation. First of all, it appears in 1 Corinthians as a way of resurrection. God not only did something with Jesus to get our attention, he did something as a promise that will occur to all humanity if we're willing to trust Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. He says there will be a resurrection that is promised to those who believe. We go, oh, that's ridiculous, except the fact that if he's an author capable of making one universe, why can't he remake it? And in fact, when we deny that he can resurrect this world and he can resurrect humanity and he can bring a solution to these problems, we are tr- creating for our own selves a problem of evil. How do we deal with evil? Is it just survival to fit us and it's not a problem? I don't think any of us are comfortable with that. How do you deal with this evil except for the fact that Jesus is going to deal with evil? In fact, he goes on to say, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. So he removes death from us. He gives us an opportunity for eternal life, a new life, a resurrected life. And he doesn't stop there. According to the book of Revelation, he goes on to resurrect the entirety of the universe. Then I saw a new heaven. That's the heavens above and the new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. If you love protecting the environment and this world, that's a good thing. Because God loves this world. God loves his animals. God loves his creation. God loves humanity. He loves it so much, he says, you know what, I'm going to remake it one day. All the damage we've done, all the stuff we've, we've created, I'm going to renew it. I'm going to put it back right. Because God's not out just to save a few people. He's out to restore his entire creation. This isn't just about people. This is about everything that he's made. And his first fruit, his sign that he can do it, is in the resurrection. To bring it back. To wake it up. The beauty of what I think about this for me is that I knew that fear of death hugely when I stared at my mom. I saw the pallor of death all over her. She had this gray-green skin as I'm standing there staring at her. And this spinning feeling like I was falling came over me. And I looked at her. I said, Mom, are you, aren't you scared? She said, no. No, I'll be, I'm going to be just fine. 
She had a strong faith in Jesus Christ. And I did too. I was a pastor. I'm like, but there was something that just caught me. It wasn't until later my aunt handed me a book by a man named Randy Alcorn that walked you through the theological understanding of heaven. Every verse and every aspect in the scriptures that talks about it and this concept of the new heavens and the new earth where suddenly it showed me that, what am I scared of? What's going on? I'm talking about a world where he will wipe every tear from the eyes of his children. Death shall be no more. No more fear of that. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. The former things have passed away. That stuff that we deal with right now, all the pain, all the toil, all the frustration, all the garbage, all the human interactions that we can't stand will be over because our sin will be dealt with and the renewal of the world will come. And we will walk not in broken down, sin-filled bodies, but in free, right bodies that God has made never to deteriorate again. That's the promise of the resurrection. Now, you're flying down there and you've got this backpack on. Say you receive it from Jesus, but you're still thinking, I'm still going to hit the ground. Right. We're still going to die. Even if you receive Jesus today, even if you have received Jesus, you will still die. We will always touch the ground when we jump out of the plane. It's just what speed do you want to hit it? Jesus shows up to offer you his shoot. He puts on yours that has no shoot. He's going to fall to the ground. In essence, what he's doing is saying, give me all your good stuff. Give me all the things that you think you're going to get out of it. Get you out of this problem because I'm, but I am the only one who can save you because he says, I am, fear not, I'm the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forever and I have the keys of death and Hades. And so there needs to be a transition of fears. You need to stop fearing death and you need to start fearing something else. The disciples actually felt this fear. It says in verse 41, I'll just read it to you. They were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? A great fear after the fear of death overcame them greater than the fear of death and was the fear of God. Was the fear of Jesus. Why is that? Well, to move forward, Jesus puts it this way. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. That's Jesus' explanation of God. He says you should fear God because he has the right to cast you into hell. So how do we let death become a friend and not a fear? Well, judgment is over. When you, if you are willing to exchange that shoot with Jesus Christ, what he is saying is give me all your stuff that you're depending on. You're saying, oh, I'll make it. My backpack will help me. I'll bounce off it. I'll figure something. That's like somebody saying, no, when I stand before God, I'll be fine. There's a quote of Winston Churchill over at Pyology. You can go read it after church or, when, or next week. And it basically says, oh, I'm ready to meet my creator, but I'm not so sure my creator's ready for the ordeal of meeting me. I don't think he was ready. Fear him who has the authority to bring the judgment. And we want judgment, guys. I mean, otherwise, if you don't believe in God, how do you deal with evil? 
Well, how do you deal with evil? If God's so good, he can't, he, and he's not stopping, well, hold on a second. He will stop it. He will judge every bit of evil, every finite piece, exactly as it should. He is the cosmic judge who knows everything and knows exactly how to apply the exact right kind of, evil, uh, kind of justice to evil. And he will, which is a problem because it puts me in the crosshairs of his justice. I sinned enough times, I've made enough problems for other people and caused enough issues that I will stand before God in, in a judgment. And if I stood there naked with my little backpack, the impact that I hit at death will be hard because my sins have created that impact. That judgment is waiting. But if you exchange, Jesus is willing to take the impact of your sins for you. He's willing to remove the fear of that judgment and that death to give you life and to remove the judgment. On the cross, he bore our sins to take that judgment. He got in the way and he hands you a backpack that can save you when we want to hold on to what? A couple good things? I get it. You may have gone to church all your life. You may be a good person, but it's not the right kind of stuff that saves us from the judgment. There's not enough good. There's not enough things that can help us out. Jesus alone gives you what saves you. And in the resurrection, he shows that's what he's saying. Trust him. He's beat death. He's overcome sin. He has received the judgment for us. The impact of those sins have been on him. They don't have to be on us. And so he tells us, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Jesus is a radical figure. He claims to beat death, to have undone our judgment before God so that we can be free. And here's the beauty. He gives it as a gift. The resurrection's a gift. Christians, if you've trusted in that, it's a gift to know that you don't have to fear death. You don't have to fear judgment. It's a friend. All this stuff going on doesn't have to consume us in, in fear. But it's also a gift to everyone else. You don't have to clean up and be perfect. You don't have to be Mr. Perfect to become a Christian. No, we have to be messed up. That's where it starts. Our backpacks are empty. He offers us that salvation. He offers us that freedom. The question is, what are we going to do? Will we receive from God his gift and be saved from that judgment? Will we be released from that fear of death? The choice is yours. Would you bow your heads with me? Where you are in your seats right now, you have that choice. Some of you have made that choice in the past, but you never understood it fully, and you need to, and maybe this is the first time you need to do that. But if you understand that God is offering you an opportunity to be forgiven of your sins, that the judgment could be removed from you, that death does not have to be something so fearsome, but that you would have the opportunity to live not just a resurrected life, but on a new earth. That the author of your life and all things is giving you this chance. If you're willing to receive that today, I'll give you the chance to do that right now. He's offering you this exchange, your sins and your good works for his salvation. If that's you and you're ready to do that, um, I want to walk you through a, a prayer. But I want to know that you're willing. 
You can let me know just by putting your hand up. You're saying, that's me. I need to make that exchange right now. I'm ready to receive that gift from God. It's your choice. I'm just asking you to let me know. Those of you who have your hands raised, just give you an option here to talk to God. It's your, it's your time to speak to him. What you do, you start just by laying out your sins, just telling him about them. He already knows them, but it, you're letting him know that you know. When you get through that process, as you begin to do that, I want you to imagine that you're turning away from those sins and those things that you've done wrong to others and those good works even. You're turning to God. It's called repentance. Now ask Jesus to bear your sins for you. Tell him that you're willing to receive all that you need to stand before God and enter into heaven. That you trust you've been forgiven. right where you are. Invite him into your life to lead you through the rest of your life and into eternity. Father, I lift up those who are working through that prayer with you. I ask that you'd make yourself real to them in the next couple weeks, that you'd show yourself as the forgiver and the great God who is able to handle these things. And God, I ask that you'd also just uh, help all of us who have received you to stand firm in the promises that you've given us as you overcome our fear of death. And I ask that you would be just clear to us in all these things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's children said,